Hello, this is Disturbed Minds, and I'm your host, Maddie Day. Before we get into the story, I need to let you know that this is a true crime podcast, so some content may be difficult to hear or may be triggering for some listeners. Any especially disturbing stories will have further disclaimers. I am no expert, I am just fascinated by the darker side of humanity, and I enjoy discussing it with friends. I never intend to glamorize these perpetrators or their crimes, only to honor the victims and their memories. started (laughs) um i think i already warned you this is a pretty nasty one it's about the serial killer anthony sowell i don't know if that's exactly how you say his last name but i don't really care (laughs) it works he doesn't deserve correct pronunciation so this took place 2007 to 2009 on imperial avenue in east cleveland ohio Oh my gosh, my grandmother just moved to Ohio. Don't tell me this. It was a long time ago. It's okay. It was over 10 years ago. He, he, yeah. It's fine. She's fine. So basically, he's a serial killer. His victims were black female drug addicts. A lot of them were homeless. So he'd lure them in by going out at night, seeing them on their own, and offering them a place to stay the night, offering them drugs. His entire neighborhood smelled really bad, and everyone thought it was this sausage factory that was there. Um, thought. Yeah, so, like, this whole time, it smells, and everyone's like, oh, whatever, like, it's just a sausage factory. And that's what he tells these girls when they come over, and they're like, oh my god, what is that smell? He's like, oh, it's just a sausage factory. So when he'd get them in his home, he'd get them high give them drugs. It was usually crack, I believe, and he would tie them up and keep them there physically and sexually assaulting them for hours. At least three women survived him. One of them jumped out of his window. He was on the second story. She jumped out of his window naked, and this man saw it and was like, what the fuck? And Anthony was like, oh, then that's my woman, and I need to take her back inside. And that's, like, all he would say was that it was his woman. So Donald, the man he said this to, was like, yeah, no, because she, she jumped out and then was unconscious from the fall. Anthony was, like, trying to wake her back up. He was also completely nude. And I so I got this story from um, the show Killer Instinct. 
And they actually have footage of this because he was beside the sausage factory and they had surveillance cameras. So they caught this on the surveillance camera. So it shows him, her jumping out the window, him running down and trying to wake her up. Donald, the bystander, called 911. But she didn't want to further report anything because she was married and she didn't want her family to find out that she was on drugs and that she was sleeping with other men. And he, of course, had also threatened her life. Um, But the police did investigate further because there was, as far as they knew, there was nothing more to investigate. She was just high on drugs and jumped out a window, as far as they knew. And was this, like, the police first interaction with him for, like, all all we know as of now? Yes. Um, He was, like, he didn't really do anything. I don't think he really held a job. He served two terms in the Marine Corps and had an honorable discharge. And then I don't think he really worked again. Didn't really say... So they never... And he didn't really commit petty crimes. Obviously he did drugs, but he'd never been caught. So they really had no idea about him. Um, Two other women had managed to talk him into letting them leave. The one woman, Vanessa, she's interviewed on the show... And she said that when um, she she had gotten there, as soon as they started walking up the stairs, she immediately regretted it, but it was too late. She was already in there, and then once they started smoking, he just punched her in the face, and she was crying, but she kept, she'd turn her head to, um, so he wouldn't see her crying. When she looked into his eyes, she said they were just empty black holes. She doesn't know how long she was he kept her there for but she went there in the evening and it was daylight when she left she convinced him to let her leave because she said she was like oh no there's nothing nothing for me to tell I can't tell on you because I came here voluntarily I I did your drugs there's nothing to tell anyone so what would I tell them basically when she was leaving she turned her head and was like looking around and she saw a headless corpse wrapped in garbage bags, sitting in another room. She said as she was walking down the stairs, she felt like every step was more time she was getting on her life. Like, when she was there, she felt like, this is it, he's gonna kill me. And then each step was, like, another few years she was getting back. And she didn't report it, because she also knew they weren't gonna listen to her because she was a homeless drug addict, and she had gone there voluntarily to do drugs. Which obviously isn't fair, but is unfortunately the truth of the matter. Another, The other woman that escaped him um, by just convincing him she wouldn't tell anyone, she was actually a friend of his. Um, she'd hung out with him lots of times, done drugs with him lots of times, but this one time he just suddenly turned on her, strangled her until she passed out, kept her for hours physically, sexually assaulting her, and... She was there during the day, and then when she came to after passing out, it was dark, and he was just sitting there watching her. But she also convinced him to let her go, so he does let her go. And she goes to the guy who owns, like, the local convenience store, and she tells him what happened. His name's Fawcett. Fawcett confronts Anthony, and is like, okay, why is this woman telling me you did this to her? Like, what did you do? And Anthony, of course, denies it. Um, So she actually goes to the police. But at one point, she gets scared and changes her mind and, like, won't won't answer any more questions. 
But then a few months later, she does go back eventually, and she comes back into play later. So the smell in the neighborhood keeps getting worse. Uh, the owner of the sausage factory has to pay $30,000 for a new grease trap and sewer system, because that's what they think the smell is. They think it's like the waste. But everything in the neighborhood starts getting impacted by the smell. This one man, he actually had employees, including even his own wife, who quit working for him because they couldn't stand the smell, and no one's coming into his store anymore. So he starts investigating. His shop is near Anthony's apartment, and there's there's a big dumpster in the alley where all the people from where Anthony lives put their garbage and where him and other shop owners put their garbage. So he assumes it's coming from there. He finds a garbage bag with duct tape, so he assumes it's the lady who lives above his store that her dog died, and that's how she disposed of the dog. I'm not sure why that's an assumption, but that's Very an assumption. specific collection. <laughs> I know, like, if I saw a garbage bag with duct tape on it, my first thought wouldn't be, oh, someone's dog died, but okay. So he goes and, like, asks if she knows what it was, and her dog's very much alive. So that's when people kind of start suspecting that it's coming from that house that Anthony lives in. And Assad, this shop owner who was investigating the smell, he sees that Anthony's starting to act different. He's looking different. He looks like you can tell more that he's on drugs and he doesn't look right. Like, he just looks, you know, the drug look. And he's been buying a lot of garbage bags. Eventually, the smell is attributed to his home and all the decomposing bodies inside and outside of it. The sex crimes unit got a hold of his friend's story, the one who escaped and reported what he did to her. So they got a warrant for his arrest, which also means they get to look through the house. Home's disgusting, doesn't look like it's ever been cleaned the entire time he's lived there. There are clothes and garbage everywhere, and they just, as they just walk around checking the place out, they find two dead bodies. But he's not there. They find four more bodies in the house, so six total inside. They were all, they were mostly wrapped up in garbage bags. Some of the women were still tied up. One of them had a gag in her mouth. And one of the bodies they found was actually just a skull in a bucket. And they're suspicious that the dead body that Vanessa saw that was headless might have been her body. Because every other body was found, everything still attached. Like, all, no one else was dismembered, so they think it might have been her. It makes you think that these women coming into the home must have been, like, either before coming in or by the time they got into the house long enough to look around. They were so, like, heavily sedated by these drugs or, you know, either too scared to say anything once they were mm -hmm. there because it's making me think, like, these were accumulating. Like, each time he'd bring a new woman in, there'd be a body somewhere in his house. Yeah. Well, like, Vanessa was, saw the one body, but she said when they, like, when she first got there, they just immediately went up the stairs to the bedroom. They didn't mm. really get to look around, and by the sound of it, I doubt he let them go to the bathroom or anything. Um, but it makes me wonder, like, I guess he probably never had people over, or else they would have seen this stuff. Or they were all too deep into their own addictions to notice things. 
or see things and assume they were just seeing things and it wasn't real. And that's to assume that he was a social person. Yeah. That he even had friends or family. And that's what really makes me think, too, with, like, obviously this one woman that he was friends with. You know, how many friends did he actually have like this? Was Mm -hmm. this one of the only people he interacted with? And one day he snapped, like, can he not be around people? Or does he specifically only go out to interact with people when he needs to satisfy this thing within him? It's very interesting. That's a good question. I don't think it gets into that. But it does talk about, like, everyone in the community knew each other but that doesn't necessarily mean he actually hung out with anyone except for that one woman he kept so then as they continue obviously they end up doing a full-fledged search the entire property they find five more bodies in the backyard so that house was actually in the family him and his brother were raised there yeah so he grew up in that house and got it when his parents moved on so Eight out of the 11 bodies they found still had bindings and ligatures on them. Two of the other three were too decomposed to tell, and the other one was just a skull. Which they never did find the rest of her remains, unfortunately. They did eventually... That makes makes you think there's another place he was storing these things. Right, like why 11 literally in his house and in his backyard, which is the most disgusting part. He was living... With decomposing bodies. Not not just one or, like, whatever. Not Like, I know there's other serial killers who would live amongst it, but, like, freezers or vats of mm-hmm. chemicals, like, they wouldn't just have, like, decomposing smell and live amongst it. Clearly, it was a different situation. Yeah, like, it was bad enough that the entire neighborhood smelled. So five decomposing bodies in his home. That he just lived with. And then another question I had for those decomposing bodies, were there ever was there ever like a a time frame on those? Because if the house was inherited, like was he killing people as a teenager or as like a like a younger kid? Was maybe like, you know, mental illness running in the family? Was maybe this like a family member, like these older decomposed bodies? I feel like if it's included in his body count, maybe it wouldn't be the situation of the latter of it being someone else. But I do wonder, like, if they were able to see how early the killings started from the bodies they had, or at least form an So they were able to identify all the bodies, and I will get to all their names at, near the end. They were able to determine, based on who the victims were, and they were all reported missing, that these 11 women were killed 2007 to 2009. That doesn't mean he didn't... He could have killed before, but they have no confirmation of that. Just these 11 women on his property were 2007 to 2009. And in one of the graves in the backyard, there was two women who were cousins that were buried together, but at different times. So it's weird because they didn't like go to his house together. Like One was significantly more decomposed than the other. So it's almost as if he somehow knew they were cousins because no one else was unless, double buried. Unless they had gone there together and he kept one alive longer yeah, than the other. That's true. That is possible. So while they're doing all of this, they have no idea where he is. He's gone. And how, how, old, is, how old is he Like at the point where they're looking for him? That is a great 
question. Let's see. Well, a fun little uh, story while you're searching. It's really funny that you mentioned that. So I do The Haunted Montreal, which is uh, ghost stories in Montreal. And we have a, it's not like a winter slash Christmas theme. And one of the stories is about this man named Cosette the Vagabond, which was basically a beggar. And on Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve, he looks around and he's begging for money, for scraps, for anything to have like a Christmas meal. And he ends up seeing a butcher and all these merchants markets are connected by um, a vault where they send all their scraps down into a collective uh, kind of sewer system. So he sees like all these scraps of meat, asks for the butcher, like, please don't throw those away, give them to me. The butcher is like, no, no, go away. I'm not giving you anything. So after everything closes down, he decides it's a good idea to go see if one of the vaults are open. And he sees these scraps of meat on the edge of the vault. So he leans in, tries to grab some, and he's startled by a dog, obviously drawn by the scent of all the raw meat, Mm -hmm. and scares himself, falls into the vault. The door slams closed. When he falls, he breaks several ribs. And he's screaming for help, and nobody hears him. So some time passes, and there is a horrible smell coming from the collectors. And it's a store owner who is losing business who decides, I'm going to go look in the collectors and see what's causing the smell. And I guess um, there was a gate to prevent uh, like overage flow into the like into the canal from the collectors and the body was stuck there bloated and decomposing uh, and that's what caused the smell so it was very interesting thinking about how it was like this one store owner who's like I'm sorry I'm not going to deal with no business <laughs> no yeah. more from this smell <laughs> so in 2009 he's 50 years old Okay. So like, so he's quite a bit older. Yeah, and realistically speaking, um, and psych- psychologically speaking, he probably didn't start at forty-eight years old. So, um, obviously, a manhunt begins. They need to find him. They speak to a bunch of family members who are kind of like, I don't know. I think he went here, but I don't know for sure because he didn't say. The U.S. Marshals office got involved they started searching um family members property and he was hiding at his sister's house who was around the corner like the next street over and a neighbor runs in and was like what's going on like there's a bunch of police searching your house and then he gets excited and he says to her it's all gonna come out now and she was like what are you talking about and he won't say anything else So she goes to drive him home and as she's taking him home, all he says, like he won't say more about what's going on or anything. He just says to her, that girl made me do it. And this neighbor's like, what the fuck? Get out of my car. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to be involved in this. So he gets out and takes off. So she drives over to the police and say, this is where he went, but he's gone by then. He's not at his friend, at his sister's house because... She told him there's people. Vanessa, who was one of the women who escaped him, she sees his photo in the newspaper that they're looking for him. And, like, until that moment, she didn't truly realize how much danger she was in. 
like she never really fully let herself believe that she had come that close to death and that he was capable of that. They eventually find him and he's just walking down the street near his house. Like he didn't really try to get away. But they ask him who he is and he gives them a fake name. But they arrest him anyways because he matches the description. Like, once they get to the police station, they fingerprint him and everything. He admits who he really is. And they're like, yeah, we know. (laughs) He's interrogated for ten hours, but he doesn't admit anything. He's held for 20 months before trial. Vanessa testifies against him. I believe so does the friend who he assaulted. Prosecution had 60 witnesses. And the defense had zero. The jury took three days to decide. Which, that really surprised me. That the jury mm-hmm. took so long. The whole, like, just the fact that the defense couldn't come up with any, like, any witnesses to, like, help the case of the defense. Exactly. That, sh- that should be, and the, f- and the amount of witnesses like, that were there, like, yeah, yeah, this man is not right. Yeah. I feel like, though, unfortunately, the jury taking a while could probably be contributed to the fact that his victims, they were drug addicts, they were black, a lot of them were homeless, and typically drug addicts are not considered reliable witnesses, and the women who survived him testified against him, so there's probably someone, at least one juror who wasn't sure if they should believe them. But, the verdict comes back. He's charged with 11 counts of aggravated murder. He's also charged with 60 other various charges, including attempted murder on the three women who escaped him, abuse of corpses, and kidnapping. He gave a brief statement at sentencing, and, and he said, quote, The only thing that I want to say is that I'm sorry. I know that it might not sound like much, but I am truly sorry from the bottom of my heart. This is not typical of me. I don't know what happened. I can't explain it. But I know it's not enough, but that's all I can give. Unquote. So, yeah, he didn't really offer anything. And he wouldn't look at the families when he was giving a statement or through the entire trial. He wouldn't look at any of them. In his mind... His victims got what was coming, and if he didn't do it, someone else would have. He, while he says he's sorry from the bottom of his heart, it doesn't really seem like he actually is at all. Especially considering it was a targeted group. It's not necessarily, like, all drug addicts or all homeless people or just, you know, like, all women. Like, it was a specific demographic, so clearly he had some kind of personal opinion or vendetta that Mm -hmm. caused this or maybe he just thought it was the most accessible for his needs which are also driven by his like personal opinion that thinks that that's okay or whatever (laughs) the quote he said to uh, his sister's neighbor and he said that girl made me do it that makes it sound like something happened to trigger this like there was some woman that he thought wronged him and for some reason he decided that meant he needed to kill a shit ton of women. I don't yeah. know. And I wonder if that that is like 
if he had one specific traumatic event or traumatic or like emotional event for mm-hmm. himself that caused this and maybe that's where the specific group like person type for his victims came from or maybe he could have been saying it as in like oh like they chose this lifestyle they caused this to happen to them mm-hmm. which is interesting because he was it sounds like that is somewhat of his opinion because he said um, if he didn't do it, someone else would have, even though he was in the exact same lifestyle as them. He just had a house where some of them were homeless. But he didn't, like, he got the house from his family. It's not like he worked and bought his own house. So he wasn't really any different than these women. His niece testified against him. Her mother died when she was eight, and her and her six siblings moved in with him. So it was an older sister of his moved in with him his mom and his grandma and he sexually abused her this niece who testified against them and the mother anthony's mother would force all the women in the house to strip naked in front of all the children and then would tie them up to the banister and whip them with electrical cords until they bled. His niece and them would get separate beatings, and then she'd have all her kids watch. And when she was 12, she started developing more, and so the boys in the house started paying extra attention during these beatings because she was naked. And when she was... Sorry, did I say 12? I meant 10. So she's 10, he's 11, so he's only actually a year older than her, and he sexually assaulted her, so it did start earlier on. It's sad because his mother's behavior taught him that this was okay, and obviously as an adult, it's a different story, but as an 11-year-old, he wouldn't have understood that this was wrong, and for this niece it started going on all the boys in the house started assaulting her almost daily and this was just life in that house so obviously growing up like that contributed to him turning out the way he did but then again there's the other side well she's not a serial killer so and the brother the brother as well yeah but you know it it, that that can also be attributed to what people think like biological might be something biological that the external triggers and maybe they just didn't have that biological to have the external trigger exactly and that's what the um current theory by psychologists is it's being studied and such is they think there's a gene that has to be set off so something traumatic has to happen to trigger it and then that's what contributes it to it because and that would make a lot of sense because there's lots of people who go through all kinds of violence like that. Like this niece, like the other kids who live there who never killed other people. And it, it's interesting and I'm excited to hear more once they've studied it longer. But there's, it's got to be more than just nature versus nurture because lots of kids grow up the same way and turn out just fine. Don't kill people. When he was handcuffed... At the end of court, he threw his hands in the air, like, with his handcuffs on, and said, quote, y'all finally got what y'all want, I guess because he was mad people were happy he was arrested. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection, and 
in May 2020, he lost his um, last appeal. Me forgetting that execution is still a thing in the States. I know, right? I was like, I was like, oh, 2020. Like, that's really extreme because in Canada, we literally go to places where, like, this is where the last execution happened a bunch of years ago. It's, like, not even a thing here. He died on February 8th, 2021, of an undisclosed terminal illness. So, probably something stemming from all the drugs and living with decomposed bodies. That would certainly fuck up your system. Mm-hmm. And what terminal, like, could that include mental health illnesses? Or would that be something, like, terminal as in, like... Terminal illnesses are usually, like, cancer and heart disease. That's mm-hmm. what I'm wondering. Yeah. I think they would have said if it was by suicide or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he could have had a combination of condition, mental conditions that can attribute to, like, the bad health, too. But, like, yeah. like you said, you know, <laughs> breathing in all those toxins, I can't imagine was good. Uh, also, his living conditions, like, this could have affected all these things. So. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, and if he was okay with living with five decomposing bodies in his home, he probably didn't practice much self-care. Probably didn't even shower very often if he wasn't bothered by decomposing bodies. So Right. But... He's dead, so that's all that matters. So the police have been asked, and they are unable to explain why it took them so long to look into this man and the missing person's cases, because every single one of these 11 women were reported missing at some point. Martin Flask, the supervisor of the Cleveland Police Department, said, quote, Those in law enforcement share some sense of responsibility. It was our duty to protect these women, unquote. And the chief of police, Michael McGrath, could not explain why more wasn't done and wasn't quoted in anything. You're asking about friends and stuff. So he was known in the community, um, and he was well-liked. He was just seen as a, a friendly character in the community. Everyone knew who he was. Everyone liked him. So it's not like wasn't the whole loner on the edge of society type thing. Everyone knew him. But I got the impression from the show that this was, like, even just this street was a fairly tight-knit community. I'm going to get into talking about the victims. Did you have any more questions about him? No, I'm, I'm ready to jump in. Okay, so, so as I said, they were all reported missing. So, all 11 of his victims were Talisha Forston, Janice Webb, LaShonda Long. She is the woman whose skull was found, and they suspect her body is the one that Vanessa saw headless, but since they never recovered that body, they were never able to confirm that. Tonya Carmichael, Kim Yvette Smith, Imelda Hunter, Nancy Cobbs, Crystal Dozier, Tashana Culver, Diane Turner, and Michelle Mason. And Crystal and Imelda were the cousins that were buried together. Interesting oh. that they were buried together as well. Mm-hmm. And it was like... Were, were all the bodies found outside in just like one general spot or no. buried in the yard 
dozen. They were spread out throughout his yard. All everyone had their own grave except for those two women. Wow. Which is so that must have been like, like was that a moment of like I don't know, like a strange form of compassion for a serial killer, especially considering they were decomposing at different rates. He had to have gone back and been like. This is like where your cousin is buried. I'm gonna bury you with her. Yeah. Like a long time ago. Like Tanya Carmichael. Um, she was 53 years old when she was reported missing. Her daughter Donita said part of why her missing persons case wasn't taken as seriously is she was known to disappear for a couple days, and of course that's one of the questions they ask you. So her daughter admits yes, she she would disappear for a day or two. But it had been, like, a week or so when they reported her missing, and she had never been gone for that long. She always, despite her personal illnesses and issues going on, she would always come back every couple days for her kids. Michelle Mason was 44. She was literally just walking a couple blocks to go to a friend's house and disappeared. Like, it was a short walk, and she was seen getting into a van with someone so they suspect maybe he stopped and offered her a ride or something and a store owner told Michelle's mom that he saw a man ripping down all the missing posters of her the assumption is it was Anthony because no no one else would really do something like that yeah that's so eerie though still like he was like actively aware of what he did Mm. actively aware that people were looking for her yeah, super creepy. They never 100% confirmed it was him, but I can't imagine anyone else feeling the need to do that other than the person who killed them. And it's not like there's any leads that he had any friends or accomplices, so that really makes it seem unlikely. Well, exactly, and, like, his brother is on the show, and, like, even his family was shocked by this. Like, they knew he had addiction issues, they knew he had some issues going on, but no one ever thought he was a violent person. And I know they say that about a lot of them, but a lot of the time, like, sometimes family members and close friends can see the violence, but the brother was very shocked by it. The sister whose house he was at was not interviewed. Yeah, that's interesting, because she she knew people were looking for him. At that point, she knew she was harboring a serial killer, or she didn't know the extent. She might not have known when he was at her house, because he would have heard, like, I don't know, since she's not interviewed and she's not really talked about other than the fact that he was at her house, I don't know for sure, like, what she knew, because the neighbor came over and said, oh my god, there's a bunch of cops at your house, like, what's going on? And he had been at her house, like, playing video games with her son, and then he took off. So he might have just been visiting her because she lived... Mm-hmm. a couple blocks away to visit her and play with his nephew and then he took off from there once he heard what was going on and they just happened to go to his home when he was out at her house like I don't know for sure the police obviously didn't take these missing persons reports seriously and all the families attributed to the fact that their family members were addicts they all all of these women were addicted to drugs not all of them are homeless, like I said. Some were like the one woman who would go away for a couple days and come back. But yeah, really sad stuff. When talking to his brother, they found out that he did... Um, the children were abused. They were sexually and physically and emotionally abused as children. 
they would be beaten, whipped, and tied up naked while being beaten. Like, the punishment would be just a time. How was this reported? Through through the children's accounts, like, afterwards? From him and his brother disclosed this information. So, like, their punishment would be tied to a kitchen chair, naked, and then beaten. They also think part of his victimology is his ex-wife. He did have a failed marriage because of his addiction. And she looked similar to the women. So they think that's at least how he picked who. Because they often, they don't always, but they often do have a type. Let me show you what this creep looks like. They always have a look. Yeah. This is him in court. Oh no, my brain is supposed to Wait, I'm sorry? He's black? Yeah. This whole time? Yeah, sorry, oh he goodness, is also this black. This whole time I had him pinned as like a racist. Like as a racist targeting drug addict homeless women. Yeah, sorry, I probably huh. shouldn't mention that part. So that, that that makes me think even more that it could have been, like, maybe, like, him, like, taking his issues from his parents, like, his mom beating him and, like, and going his, towards, like, like were, were his parents drug addicts as well? Or is that not, um, not reported? I don't know. He definitely would have had some, clearly never dealt with what happened to him as a child. So that would contribute to it, and again, his failed marriage because of his addiction is unfortunate, but at least he's dead. Sorry, you said he he had a failed marriage? Yeah, so he was, I didn't really, I didn't find much information about that, but he was married, and she did eventually leave him because of his addiction. Interesting. Yeah. And, yeah, it could, it could be, like, from his trauma with her as well, for specifically targeting women. Yeah. And it's very interesting to me, like, he, marriage ensues that it was a long period of time. Was he killing at the same time, or was he only doing this afterwards? Mm-hmm. Like, very interesting to think about how that contributed. Yeah, it's crazy to think about, like, maybe the repressed emotional trauma from being abused as a child and then like the emotional trauma from a divorce triggered him to go into some kind of psychotic episode that made him think that killing people was okay Plus because the like effects of the drugs clearly, on his brain yeah absolutely prolonged cuz clearly like if he was married with a wife and Maybe because she hasn't come forward, like, there were things happening within the marriage that were pre-tell to this, mm-hmm. or was it something, like, did he just stop, is what I'm really, really curious about. Yeah, me too, and I don't think she has ever spoken. It doesn't sound like she ever has, which, I mean, is understandable. She probably wouldn't want to. I mean, yeah, she's probably moved on with her life, and she wouldn't want to be linked to that, considering it's also, like... You know, he just passed away, so it's clearly in the news again right now. Had she been affiliated with, it would just keep coming back. Mm-hmm. He does have a child as well. I don't know mm-hmm. much. And I didn't mean that kid. I know. That's so sad. Maybe and then maybe that can, that's, that would definitely be another reason why she wouldn't come forward. Uh, uh, sorry, assuming that the ex-wife is the mother. Yeah, I think so. I think she is. Well, I'm very glad that he was caught before he could hurt anybody else. And yeah. I'm glad that, you know, 
how traumatic for that that cousin to come forward about her sexual abuse so many years after the fact. Yeah. But um, you know that that all also probably resulted in a lot of emotional healing for her and maybe for the family as well. You never know. So, you know, there's always a silver lining, I suppose, you know, the whole situation transpiring would be um, ideal that it would not happen, but there are people like that in the world. And at least, you know, he was put, put away before anything worse. Yeah. Anything more. Yeah. It's unfortunate that they never found um, the one woman's body, though, but at least they were able to identify her with her skull, and they were able to identify all of the victims, which is good. Makes me wonder if there were more victims, though, the fact that they haven't found her body. Yeah, and that his violence started at 11, and he was 50 when he was caught. Yeah, and, and what did you say the time frame was again, 2007 to 2010? Um, it was May 2007 to October 2009. So. That's, that's nothing years. compared to, and that's to a, the 40 years between that. That's a lot of women in a short period of time. 11 women in less than two years. It's a lot. So if you average that out, the potential <laughs> would be yeah. frightening. Now what do you have for me? All right, so it's nothing too heavy, but it is. Uh, it had to be personal, so I had to put my little spice on it. So I'll give you a nice story. As you know, currently I am in Montreal. In high school, I was living in Montreal as well. I didn't start living on the island. I lived on the South Shore, which, if you are listening from the GTA, is similar to living in Mississauga and commuting to, like, Eglinton and Lawrence to go to school. You know, it's, it's not super far but you're definitely not centrally located so on my last year of high school my dad moved to the island and I was living with him at the time so I was going to high school still on the south shore all my friends were on the south shore which compared to like living in the city of Montreal is very like suburbia residence quiet nice specifically the city I went to high school in is like known to be like a bougie like old person area so you know we're not used to anything like too dramatic when you go to Montreal it's loud there's people going on all hours of the night not now with lockdown and curfew fun times um but that is what it's like so we moved to an area of Montreal called Verdun and Verdun was not known to be the best area and the reason why is because that area I don't hold me to the details exactly but that area didn't receive their liquor license or like stores and restaurants weren't allowed to sell alcohol a little bit longer than like the main island of Montreal or like downtown so there's a lot of bars and restaurants that were selling like under the radar and it became known to be an area where like you know, a lot of, like, alcoholics hung around, a lot of drug addicts, party people. So it wasn't known to be the nicest area, but the time I moved there, it was starting to be a little more up and coming. Even if I think I look at it now, it's even more, like, up and bougie. The apartments are a little more expensive in that area than they were in my day, but still, like, a little bit more rundown area of Montreal. So me, I'm, uh, I think, 17 at the time and I'm like wow look at me I live on the island so cool but like also like super creeped out like at the metro there's always a bunch of homeless people you know 
super casual, uh, like hecklers, like you come off the street and, you know, so that's just like living in the city, you get used to it. So I had a friend really close with me. We were having a little sleepover. It was, I think, the first weekend I was living there. We decided to go for a walk to meet um, a substance provider. <laughs> young, young, enthusiastic teenagers. The local pharmacist. <laughs> the local pharmacist um, was only a couple blocks down the street from where we, uh, where I was living. So very nice summer afternoon, we go for a walk, and as we walk past a bus booth, we notice a man, a very large man, sitting on the bus booth who looks like he may be unconscious. I don't think we really thought anything of it at the time. Maybe, like, looked and walked past. Sorry, do you mean so, large, like, um, like, tall or, like, obese? Like, maybe 300 pounds. Okay. <laughs> like, not he was sitting there, like, it. 300 pounds on the bus bench. Like, Sleeping. there was not enough room for another person on the bus bench. So, I don't know if we thought he was sleeping or we didn't really, like, take anything of it. But as we walked past the man, we noticed behind us, like, a woman went towards him. And then we heard, like, some sirens. We did, I don't think we really processed what was happening at the time until we heard some woman scream at the top of her lungs. And we see an ambulance and a police car pull up and... Looks like we had just seen our first ever dead body. Oh my god! <laughs> Turns out, moving to Montreal, my first weekend as a teenager, I bring my like cute friend from the South Shore, super innocent. We see this dead body, and as we're walking back, because of course we had to return from the pharmacist to go back home, we had the pleasant visual of seeing, I think, about six individuals try to carry this man on a stretcher. So the whole time walking, I think my friend was like, did I just really see a dead body? Was that a dead body? So a fun little party story I like to pull out is, hey, have you guys ever seen a dead body? Well, apparently I have, and it doesn't end there. We really thought, due to his um, obese nature, that he, and he was a bit older, we thought maybe he passed away of, like, a heart attack or even just, like, you know, and he wasn't that old, but, you know, old age, yeah. something health-related. Well, we kept our eye out the next couple of days, and it was released in Montreal News that he was actually stabbed. And when we think about it a little bit more, he was sitting with his hands resting on top of his stomach. So what I'm thinking is that he got stabbed. Nobody noticed. Maybe it was kind of like a, a hit-and-run, a stab-and-dash <laughs> and he was just sitting there holding his wound and he just passed away. Oh my god. So it was not only did I see a dead body, but potentially a murder. So wow. that's my fun little story. Uh, as you can see, I was a little shook for the area I was living in after. Yeah. But um, I continued to live in Montreal and that's the same area I actually got my first apartment by myself. So I'm still here. Uh, you just have to learn how to, you know, combat the area. Yeah. Wow. And then you got to walk through past a crime stream with drugs. Exactly. And <laughs> nobody was paying attention. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you wouldn't have needed to be worried. They were pretty preoccupied. Jeez. I've never seen a dead body. Um... One time I was with my dad, and it was, like, the summer. Like, it was not near Halloween, 
but somebody had put like one of those severed hand decorations in their tree and then I guess they couldn't get it out. So we like turned around the corner and I was like, oh my god! And I was like, oh, it's plastic. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, in my, uh, in when I used to live in Vermont with my grandmother, we had a huge house and our whole backyard was basically a giant forest. And I used to go walking in the forest and I got to a certain point in the forest, which was like, it was like a sleeping bag. Uh, like a pillow like this is like a street on a mountain there's only like three other houses so I was super freaked out every time I went to go to a sleepover at a friend's house and their dad would drive me home I would make them go into the woods and look to make sure like the stuff hadn't moved around Mm -hmm. like I thought like somebody was living out there was gonna come get me and then like during the winter time I saw like I think it was like leftover like must have been like garbage bags from when they were living there and you know, my overactive imagination was like, it could be anything. So I had to send people out there to check. But, you know, nothing was found. Yeah, and it's like, we lived in Vermont. Like, you're living deep in the forest doing what? Like, Maybe very confusing. Were... It's not like you're not like you're homeless and you're just, like, living in the streets. Like, you're living deep in the forest. Like, what are you doing? Trekking two hours to get into city to get food and then trekking back so up the mountain? Unabomber's style guy? Wow, yeah. I've never seen a dead body. You were, like, 17. To be. Yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> and did that friend ever come back over? Oh, yeah. Oh. That friend currently lives in Montreal, so. Oh, okay. Didn't steer him. Didn't, did not steer him away. That's good, then. So, behind, like, the main campus of my school in Oshawa, like, in the, the main campus shared with the college, there's this like there's a bunch of woods and it's like pretty common like people will go from res and go get drunk there like guilty done it i think it was in like october this past october i was visiting a friend and it was her birthday party so we met up with some people and we went to go through a walk because it was just like i don't know a thing everyone wanted to do you just get drunk and wander through the trails so we went and the guys were these two guys we were with were telling us that the other day they had gone through and they had gone on, like, this trail they hadn't gone down before because there's a bunch of trails. And, like, there was this, like, cute little bridge made out of logs and stuff. And they found, like, this shack that someone was clearly, like, squatting in. Like, there was a bunch of shit and it looked like they had, like, were gonna come back. They didn't see anyone. But then, like, as they're telling us about this, then we start, like, hearing music in the distance. And, like, obviously none of us are sober. So, like... My one friend starts, like, freaking out, and then we find our way back, and we're walking past residents, and these, like, drunk girls, these drunk first years start talking to us, and turns out the music was them, (laughs) and they had been in the forest as well, drinking, and they had just come back at the same time as us, but we were, like, freaking out and, like, heard it, because it was really distant, so it sounded like it could have been anything, but it was just some 17, 18 Very funny, like, now that we're chatting, when you asked me to, like, come up with, like, a personal true crime story, I was like, wow, I really don't have one, and now I I have another one, so you're gonna have to pull me back on here again, I'll save it for a different time, it's, like, an actual story, so, yeah, you're gonna have to pull me back on here, because I have a pretty, a pretty good one that a, a body was found but it was like it free like the body a body was found near like where i was staying and it was clearly like foul play so it was very scary i'll get more into it not the same as this other one no 
the body being found is spooky, but uh, having like you know somebody murdered with nobody caught roaming around where you're staying. Mm-hmm. Did yeah? Did they catch? Did you find out any more? Like if they caught the guy who killed the man you saw? Really, really no information. Like all we saw was that like police recovered a dead body that was stabbed on Blank Street. That's all we ever found out. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Disturbed Minds. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow the show on Instagram for show details, pictures, and more.